Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Ralph Manguel. He's a contributing editor to City Journal, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and he's been on the podcast before. His latest piece for us, which appears in the winter 2021 issue of the magazine and was released online just this past week, is called Soft on Crime, and it details how a Biden administration policy uh, toward policing and law enforcement could spell a real problem for American cities. Ralph, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me back, Brian. Always a pleasure. Uh, as most people who paid attention to the election will recall, President Biden, when he was running in the primary, was attacked pretty ferociously by his Democratic colleagues, including his Vice President Kamala Harris, uh, for his previous support for the then popular but now infamous crime bill. But as you write, the Joe Biden of 1994 is unfortunately gone, and he's repudiated his role in the great crime decline of the 90s and 2000s. Can you tell me what you expect from the Biden administration when it comes to policing, law enforcement more broadly? What worries you the most? Well, one of the things that worries me the most is where the country finds itself on the policing front with respect to the number of police on the street. For a couple of years now, police departments around the country have been pretty consistently reporting really serious retention and recruitment issues. And of course, you know the protests uh, in the wake of George Floyd's death in Minneapolis have really exacerbated that. Right? There's there's been just you know a much more pronounced uh, anti-police climate that is, is kind of bubbled over in a lot of American cities. And that has caused a lot of police officers near retirement to, to take that step and leave, uh, and leave their departments. Um, we've seen that here in New York um, to the point where at one point, Commissioner Shea actually had to put a cap on the number of people that could retire in a given uh, period of time. But we've also seen that in places like Chicago and Minneapolis. Um, more and more cities are now flirting with this idea of defunding police, which is um, primarily uh, hitting their ability to to replace the officers that they're losing now. Uh, so, of course, here in New York City, um, we saw the July uh, New York Police Department Academy class canceled as a result of the one billion dollar cut uh, passed by the the city council this summer. And so, you know, when I think about Joe Biden, I think about, of course, his role in the ninety four crime bill and. One of the things that people may not know about that bill was that one of the most consequential aspects of it was that it added about 100,000 officers uh, to the streets uh, across the country, including here in New York City. And, you know, depending on, on the department, those officers basically became eligible for retirement in about 2014 to 2020, um, which means that we're, we're at the point where we're going to start losing um those officers in pretty great numbers, which means that whatever detriment we've been seeing as a result of the recruitment and retention crisis that's pre-existed uh, the anti-police climate of 2020 and 2021, um, it, it's going to grow. It's going to get worse uh, in the coming years. And and the, the bad part about that is, is I don't see the Biden administration taking that problem seriously, I don't see it pulling uh, any policy levers to help close that gap, which is one of the things that I think it really ought to consider doing. Um, so that's that's something that, that that is really worrisome for me. And then, of course, 
there were all these other steps that that you know a presidential administration could take. Um, you know, the chief executive, of course, oversees the Department of Justice. Um, under President Obama, when when Biden was vice president, the Department of Justice was uh, uh, very fond of these pattern and practice investigations, where it would kind of intrude upon local police departments um, wherever there were you know racial disparities with respect to some kind of enforcement uh, metric. And then, uh, you know, basically coerce those departments into entering into consent decrees. Now, Roland Fryer and Tanaya Devi of Harvard University uh, recently released a, a troubling study uh, that looked at a lot of these Obama era pattern and practice investigations. And what they found was that uh, those investigations and subsequent consent decrees were actually associated with pretty serious crime upticks in the jurisdictions in which those investigations were uh, brought about by some kind of viral police incident. Uh, so something like what happened to George Floyd or, you know, more specifically, um, you know, uh, uh, Tamir Rice or, or um, Michael Brown in Ferguson. And Ferguson was actually one of the cities that saw a big um, uh, crime spike. So, you know, watching what the Biden administration does with its Department of Justice is, is certainly something um, that we ought to keep an eye out for. And early indications are that they're going to go back to that route. This is a, a good time to mention some of the work from our colleague who writes a lot on crime issues, Heather McDonald. She had a recent piece in the Wall Street Journal entitled Taking Stock of a Most Violent Year. In that piece, she highlights some of the troubling increases in homicides we're seeing in cities across the country. Murders were up 95%, for example, in Milwaukee, 78% in Louisville, uh, about the same amount in Seattle, 72% in Minneapolis, 62% in New Orleans, on and on. Now, the most common um, explanation for this increase that we're seeing in the media is the ongoing pandemic. More people are unemployed, goes the argument, and struggling. And according to this line of thinking, that leads to greater crime and violent crime. Heather uh, McDonald, for her part, disagrees with that narrative. But I wonder, what's your response uh, to the this COVID explanation or excuse? Do you think it, it really has been effective? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think the COVID explanation holds water, certainly not, you know, the formulation of people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who suggested uh, in July that uh, the homicide and shooting uptick uh, in New York was a result of, of unemployment that led to uh, some kind of economic desperation in which people would uh, you know, be uh, resort to stealing bread uh, to feed their families and that sort of thing. Of course, at the time she made those remarks, uh, petty larceny was actually down for the year in New York City. Um, and uh, so I don't think there's there's much of a connection between uh, that the pandemic's impact on on socioeconomic indicators like employment rates or poverty rates uh, and the violent crime spike that we're seeing. I mean, for one thing, you know, New York has has seen um, really sharp. Uh, uh, upticks in unemployment in the past. Of course, you know, the, the financial crisis of uh, 2008 uh, really hit New York City uh, quite hard. By 2009, um, a number of jobs had been lost, particularly among um, Black males, which um, account for a disproportionate number of the violent crimes committed in New York City. And what's interesting is that if you look at the 2006 to 2009 period, in New York, which of course captures the financial crisis that, that caused that deep recession, um, 
the 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 unemployment rate for working age black men basically doubled. It went from nine percent to just a hair under eighteen percent. Um, but during that period, homicides actually fell. They fell from um, 596 in 2006 down to 471 in 2009. In other words, the downward trend of serious crime continued during the economic downturn uh, uh, of the Great Recession, and it continued thereafter. So the you know, and and this isn't really surprising. It shouldn't be, at least to anyone who has any sense of the data uh, over the course of American history. Um, there just really isn't a, a relationship to speak of between these socioeconomic indicators and serious violent crime. There's certainly a connection to, say, property crime and that sort of thing, um, but 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 it's just not there for violence. I mean, you know, in 2016, for example, which was the year before New York City posted a modern uh, record for for low homicides in, at 292, um, the city poverty rate in 2016 was 19.5%. That's a full point higher than it was in 1989, which is the year that preceded uh, New York City's peak in homicides, um, which was a record high of 2,262 in 1990. So, you know, if you can go from almost 2,300 murders a year down to less than 300 murders a year and have the poverty rate basically stay the same, but in fact get a little worse, what that tells you is that there's something more to this phenomenon uh, than, than what people who blame the pandemic uh, are, are pointing to. Now, that's not to say that the pandemic hasn't played any role whatsoever. There are some crimes that have probably been facilitated by the, um, you know, the the downtick in the number of potential witnesses on the street, um, you know, by by the closure of businesses that might have had security cameras that would have caught people um, in the act, that sort of thing. Um, but it's it's likely more marginal than than. Than people think. Um, my my sense of, of things in New York City is that the crime uptick is probably uh, more a function of a lot of the criminal justice policy levers that have been pulled over the last five or six years um, than it is uh, of the pandemic. Well, you live in New York City, and and so that's a good bridge to the next question. We've had you on the podcast before, as I mentioned at the top, uh, and in in that previous appearance, you discussed some of those specific criminal justice reforms that have been coming from the state and local legislatures here in New York over the last several years. You had a piece recently in the New York Times, uh, congratulations for that, uh, where you break down some of the numbers in the city. Homicides uh, in New York were up 41%. Uh, Reported shootings have really, really skyrocketed up 97% from 2019 numbers. So this comes after, as as we mentioned, Democrats in Albany uh, passed um, very progressive reforms to the state's bail laws. Uh, what do you think happens next in New York? And say perhaps uh, elaborate a little bit on that uh, bail law question. Democrats now have a veto-proof state legislature in Albany, uh, a city council uh, that's eager to placate their left-wing base in the city. What reforms along these lines might we uh, expect to see uh, on the horizon? Well, we've already got um, at least some idea uh, of, of what some of those reforms might be. I mean, the city council just this past Friday actually unveiled a new legislative package um, to, quote, redefine public safety. Um, you know, it, it, I think... 10 years ago, it would have been absolutely mind-boggling to imagine a city council 
coming forward with their first new legislative initiative to be something like redefining public safety through additional police and criminal justice reforms in the wake uh, of a crime increase uh, on the order of what we saw in New York City in 2020. You know, one of the things that I wrote in that New York Times piece um, was that you know there, there's this widespread belief um, that crime upticks like what we saw last year can just easily be capitalized on to stunt reform efforts. There's a lot of, there's kind of an underdog complex within the criminal justice reform movement um, that that has really uh, taken to heart the, the the sense that, you know, the slightest uh, uptick in crime is just going to get uh, honed in on by, uh, you know, local newscasters, and it's going to scare people out of making progress on these issues. But what we've seen um, since, uh, 2020 is is really quite the opposite. Of course, you know, uh, just recently, Governor Cuomo has proposed uh, placing a, a uh, basically a corporate monitor to oversee the NYPD, um, and then there's this legislative package uh, proposed by the City Council, which includes a number of reforms, including um, removing uh, disciplinary authority from the police commissioner and placing it with uh, an independent body. Um, in this case, it would be the CCRB ending qualified immunity for police officers, which is something that got a lot of attention over the summer, um, requiring actually the city council to confirm the police commissioner much in the way that the Senate would confirm, say, a Supreme Court justice at the federal level. Uh, there will be uh, a body tasked with uh, investigating police officers with, quote, a history of bias, whatever that means. Um additional reporting requirements on on various things like vehicle stops uh, based on race etc um uh you know basically prohibiting or at least limiting police responses to mental health emergencies or what are categorized as mental health emergencies limiting police presence uh on uh public school grounds um etc so th- there's there's actually quite a lot in here moving traffic investigations to the department of transportation um is another big one so you know, even if it turns out, uh, you know, to be a, a criminal matter where the, the, the crash is caused by, um, you know, say a drunk driver uh, with an open warrant, um, you know, who's likely to run away from uh, the scene, uh, apparently that potential downside risk is not enough to dissuade um, this kind of reform proposal. So I, th- I think, you know, what we've seen in the wake of the crime increase that we saw in 2020 is, is uh, going to be more of the same of what preceded that crime increase. And, yeah, I'm not sure what that portends for the city. I don't think it's anything good, um, but but we'll have to wait and see. Certainly, it's going to, uh, I would think, harm recruitment efforts to bring new officers into the NYPD. To go back to the first question, um, that's exactly right. Especially given that you know some of the other proposals uh, from mayoral hopefuls, for example, has been. Uh, to limit um, the recruitment pool to people who live within the five boroughs, which would make it, um, you know, impossible for officers to um, serve in the NYPD while living in Nassau County or Suffolk County or Westchester County, um, which are counties from which the New York City Police Department is able to actually draw a pretty sizable uh, part of its force. Uh, so to to limit artificially the pool of potential recruits in that way at a time in which the department is down, I think, 7% year over year in terms of uh, number of officers um, in uniform service is uh, quite misguided in my view. All very troubling. Thanks very much, Ralph. Don't forget to check out Ralph Manguel's work on our website, www.city.com.
hyphenjournal.org. We'll link to his author page and his recent work in the podcast description. You can follow him on Twitter at Rafa, R-A-F-A underscore Manguel. Uh, you can also follow City Journal on Twitter at City Journal and on Instagram at City Journal underscore M-I. And as always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, please leave us a ratings on iTunes. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks uh, again, Ralph, for uh, joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.